Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. If Wendell Berry is the John Muir of the Second Growth Forest, perhaps Will Hoyt is the Henry David Thoreau of the Coal Tailings Pond. We speak to the first-time author from his home in eastern Ohio, the region that Hoyt traverses by towboat in The Seven Ranges, ground zero for the staging of America. Will Hoyt's relatively slim book, The Seven Ranges, covers a lot of territory. In a literal sense, it was the result of a journey on the Ohio River pushing barges upstream. Along the way, Hoyt, a carpenter by trade, pieces together some seemingly unrelated planks, covering such topics as surveying methods, the roots of rock and roll and Christian revivalism, the reasons for the Civil War, the rise of Romanesque architecture in Pennsylvania, Plus, he highlights personalities from Benedict to Custer to Dean Martin. It is a roller coaster of a ride written while looking through the windows of a slow moving riverboat carving its way through the heartland of America. Will Hoyt, thank you for joining us at the Brass Spittoon. You are welcome, and it's a pleasure to be here. Will, your book is many things. Among those, a local history that uses Harrison County, Ohio, and surrounding environs as a lens through which to see America and Western civilization more broadly. But before all of that, let me ask you the standard opening question here on the podcast. What does home mean to you? Well, I should have prepared and noticed you asked that question before. What is home? I am a child of uh, an officially homeless uh, generation, except in the domicile sense. I, I, I had a wonderful childhood uh, with a wonderful family, but I grew up in Albuquerque, uh, which was a post-World War II boom town, and then left Albuquerque with very little commitment to that place, except for the, the wealth of sensory impressions that are available to anybody as a young person. And um, so... I love going back, but I, there was nothing to pull me back. So in an official sense, I was unhoused, I would say. That would be the word I'd use right from the get-go and have been, uh, and you can just see it, the, uh, you know, the sins of the fathers get passed on to the kids. My kids are all over the place. I don't see that as a good thing. So in one sense, our journey here to Ohio was a search for a home that Drew, my wife, and I never had. Uh, it's bound to fail. You know, you can't create that. We are, you know, card-carrying members of a miscast uh, cadre. It's, it's just the way it is. So home, though, is something that I notice. I, we'll put it this way. I notice that there's unhousedness. It doesn't just belong to me. And the book, if it has any beginning, it's why are people so unhoused in this region of Ohio? So the book started out as sort of my story, but quickly became the story of this region. And, and it was about uh, what does it mean to be housed? What does it mean to dwell in one place? And uh, you know what happened. You mentioned in the book, you're in Berkeley, California, which you describe yeah. as paradise for a carpenter. 
It was. Uh, but you leave paradise and uh, end up in a place that you describe as more of a kill floor than a city on a hill. Now, in the book, though, you, you do a good job of making that kill floor seem like the center of the universe and tie all sorts of strands of history to it. Tell me about that decision to go from California to Ohio. How, how did that come about? And what are the seven ranges? The seven ranges quickly it's a, uh, became, you know, the land behind land. But to try, I tried to stay disciplined and remember that it, it's uh, the best um, thing to mean when you say the seven ranges is what Congress meant when it named Eastern Ohio the seven ranges. And to Congress in 1785, that meant land immediately west of the Ohio River that congressmen wanted to uh, cut up and divide. This was the first Continental Congress to um, sell lots so they could pay off war debts. Now, how did I wind up here? That is a really complicated story that I'm not so sure I have a good answer to. One day I will write that book. I mean, you know, you can start by writing maybe about your faith. And, and the next one, maybe you try something as complex as America. The third one might be who are you and where do you come from? And uh, I kind of got wheels turning on that one. But the short answer to your question is, I am not really sure how to answer that. I've often woken up and said, how did I get here? And it's like that talking head song, you know, once in a lifetime, you wake up and you just don't know, but here you are. You know, water goes underground and then it comes up and my God, how did I get here? But um, it's a wonderful place to live. I do give thanks all the time for being nested in a place where we have uh, good neighbors who are all have things I can learn from. And so when I talk about this area as a kill floor, I'm trying to be honest. I see what I see. This land was heavily stripped, but not the land on which I live. The loss that Caddis incurred on account of strip mining was huge. But there, uh, the regions that, that are kind of around the outside of where the hit was are still wonderful places, and, and the people who, who live here are doing an excellent job of just trying to lead good lives. You and mentioned one of your neighbors even uses draught horses to farm. Many of us are fans of Wendell Berry, so... Uh, oh, yeah. All ahead. my neighbors are Amish. They're just all of them. They're, they're just... We got in, uh, a huge inf wave came in just after we moved here, and it's, it's just been a wonderful gift to the region. It, it's... Uh, I give thanks for that every single day. So I'll give you another, how did you get here question, though a little easier perhaps, is how, how did you get on the boat, the Aussie Clark, if I'm saying that correctly, which is the boat on which your journey becomes the backdrop of the book. And it's far from a Viking river cruise. I mean, this is a working river boat. You are pushing thousands of pounds of coal up the Ohio River. How does one end up there? I needed um, <laughs> some institutional ground on which to stand while writing this book. That what came most naturally to me was a working man's environment, having been trained and worked as a carpenter all my life. So it felt very natural to call up Ingram Barge Company and ask them how I get on one of these coves. People who helped me in that front office were absolutely wonderful. The, that entire company uh, from top to bottom seems to me so well run you know, from the, the lowest deckhand to the director of sales, they were just magnificent and very gracious and helpful. I just got, I put out a feeler to see if I could get on one of these toes and 
I got a call just after coming home around Christmas one time from one of my far flung carpentry jobs. And uh, I, <laughs> I didn't know who I was picking up the phone to talk to, but, but it turned out to be the captain of the OC Clark. He, he wondered if I could make it down to the Willow Island lock in about 45 minutes. And, and I said, I'll be there. And this was uh, late at night. And uh, he said he'd have his cook lay out an extra meal for me. And uh, boy, I, uh, the Southern accent was there. I knew I was going to a new world and, it, and a wonderful world it was. So that's how I got on the boat and felt very at home there and, and amazed at the the workmanship there and the civility on view. It was just a wonderful bit of Southern culture, um, you know, coming up that river and going right by my home. And it, it was a real honor to be on that boat with those guys. And what put the idea in your head that you needed to be on a boat? What made you make that call in the first place? Well, it's a very good question. Trying to figure out this region was a lot like I say early in the book about getting a sense of an interior something really large. And it felt very natural to me to think of a way into the mystery of that interior as a journey up a river. It just made good existential sense and good practical sense, given the number of toes I'd watched and wondered about, you know, from the riverside. Um, Once you move here, you see these toes on the river all the time. I was used to ocean going traffic out west and also back east. I, I've never even thought about what it might be like to uh, move freight like that on an interior waterways. On this tow, you're, you are pushing barges full of coal, I believe, is what... That is uh, correct. And coal has a, is a central driver in your book and in your, your region. Yep. Uh, you give the reader something of a before coal and after coal look at your slice of Ohio. Can you walk us through that a bit? and uh, give us your take on the forces behind it. Well, (laughs) the coal industry, the forces behind that are, uh, you know, the companies that needed, well, it's a symbiotic relationship, right? It began in Manchester, England, just uh, you needed railways to move the coal. You needed the coal to run the railways. The one fed the other. And before you knew it, you had something very close to the industrial revolution. That's, that's really what you're dealing with. And these are the, the principal markers for the industrial revolution outside of the mills, the, the, the cotton mills and whatnot, the gins. But coal in this area uh, was transformative. The, 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 the Appalachian coal field is enormous. It, it just, I think um, the, the easiest way to think it's, it's bigger than half of Europe. It's just, uh, it's a large field of coal. And it's all right near the surface, thanks to mountain making events particularly in this region, it's structurally a basin. And um, so the coal on this side of the basin pokes up on a regular basis, the different stratified layers of coal. And you can mine each of those layers, each of which have names. All of it did get mined because it was just free fuel there for the taking. That's why Carnegie cited his mill here. And uh, steel, of course, built Pittsburgh, but behind the steel, (laughs) there was coal. So you're, when you look into what coal is, and, and um, you, you quickly see steel and um, our, our civilization's need for, for both, um, it's just unavoidable. Now, of course, the irony is it's all those coal mines, surface mines, they're called, um, politely, that used to be scrap land. But of course, 
along came gas and oil. And now <laughs> all the companies that were happily giving that land away started to want them back um, because of the mineral rights. Who could have ever guessed it? One mile down, that, that suddenly that's valuable, very valuable, in fact. That's the new thing giving uh, this region life. After that, it'll be magnesium power plants that somehow work on magnesium. There's a lot of solar coming in here to get set up on the, on the stripped land. And uh, who knows what comes next. And your before picture that you paint is a rather idyllic setting. You've got a lot of uh, relatively small landowners, uh, communities that are pretty whole. You, you dig up a promotional picture book from the 1800s, I believe, and, and set the stage. Can you walk us through a little bit of what it was like before, before coal comes to town? Well, one of the things um, that I note in the book is that this, uh, there's, there's archaeological uh, record of people living here for a very long time, longer than anywhere else um, in the North American continent. It's just in this area, it's 16,000 years. It's a long time. So that's the before we have in view when you live here. And more recently, you have the atlas to which you refer, uh, the Cardwell, or Caldwell's Atlas, I believe it was called. That came out in 1875. That's, it is kind of like a travel brochure because it's trying to sell the property. It's, it's supposedly uh, describing via surveys. But you see there, you know, between the, uh, the Paleo Indians who lived here right after the Ice Age and the current draft horse era um, that, that uh, preceded our industrial revolution, you, you have a, a full gamut of uh, different aspects of the land here that are on view to see. And you can, you know, though a large part of the area was stripped so heavily that you, you can't even tell its land, um, there are other pockets where you do see what was lost. And I try to describe the scale of what was lost through holding on to the full record of human habitation in this area, which is, is striking. It's, it's, uh, it's been, we've been here a long time. You're realistic about the role of the local citizenry in that change. Uh, yeah. You don't paint them as helpless victims. They're more participants. Uh, Absolutely. And, but you are, you're also tough on the corporations in particular that, that come there and, and the idea of corporations in general. Your small slice of Ohio is again central to the story of the corporation rising up to become the dominant personality in the world today. Uh, so can you walk us through that a bit? Uh, you call it the, the turning upside down of the Dred Scott decision to define property as a person. How does your bit of Ohio play into that? Well, the companies that did business here were very large. Um, you know, way back there was U.S. Steel, right? As corp, you know, that was the first mega corporation, you might say, or one of them after the British East India Tea Company. You you get, but in the sense of a modern corporation, you get U.S. Steel, you get Alcoa Aluminum, you get Gulf Oil. All of those companies were from right here. You can't their their presence here, their power here, their role as actors is. It's just a fact you've got to deal with. You note uh, the local congressman at the in the Civil War era, Congressman Bingham, uh, plays an important role in the 14th Amendment, and the 14th Amendment plays an important role in the rise of the corporation. 
Uh, yeah, well, it did that, more than just free the slaves; it uh, it freed the corporations. So tell us how it did that. Well, if you if you you know the you look at all modern day corporations now, I mean that's the biggest thing we all face. We though what with the arrival of the technocracy, uh, you know, marked by Google and and uh, Amazon and whatnot. But where did that all begin, and how did corporations gain the power they have? They currently have it. So it's funny they now own the what used to be called the public square it's now owned by one or two companies rather than a town that built the public square the town square where voices can be heard depending on who walks onto that green now you walk onto a social media site and that which is itself controlled by a handful of companies owned by just really a handful of people it's a stunning fact so we got to come up against corporate power there's and I'm not one who would just say, oh, down with corporations. I mean, I hope I make clear in this book, and I think I do, how valuable they are and how many of us are holding shares in the very same corporations that um, are now threatening our, our, our ability to think for ourselves and maybe even be free people. Where did they come from, these corporations? So it becomes a very interesting fact. And one of the most interesting facts that you notice is that they're all American, ultimately. We invented modern day multinational corporations. Where did that come from? You know, Marshall, our first Supreme Court justice, was a magnificent, you're a lawyer, you know more about this stuff than I do, but he pioneered the whole slow evolution of what corporate rights should be and shouldn't be. Things changed enormously in, in this whole business of corporate power with the civil war and they changed thanks to i was amazed to discover after one day asking myself who is that a statue of outside the courthouse down there in caddis well it turns out that's john bingham who is john bingham he drafted section one of the of the 14th amendment i can't recite it but it is it is an absolutely crucial section of text that guarantees us all due process should we ever be accused of a crime and it happens also to grant rights to corporations. Um, the, you know, this 14th Amendment did two things. One is it, it guaranteed that state power would be diminished so as to enable central government, i.e. government in Washington, to dictate to the state's terms that would have been unimaginable before the Civil War. That's a different story. But the story of the corporate power that came out of that is, is that Bingham inserted the word person where he could have used citizen or any number of different words to maybe because he, he wanted to uh, just make room for illegal aliens or something like that. More likely, and I say that not knowing the ultimate answer, because he wanted to empower corporations who were thirsting for a, the so-called personhood argument so as to be able to take advantage of personhood and get a little protection through that use of the word person. And that, that way predates the Civil War. Corporations had personhood rights, even in the Marshall uh, Court. But they got a whole bunch of new rights, thanks to the way in which the, uh, the, the, you know, the um, powers, I mean, the protections granted to persons under the terms of the 14th Amendment. And corporations, once they got that, and the story of how they got that, it had to there had to be some sort of precedent built into the Supreme Court history. And that that's the story I try to tell that once they got that, that's the real beginning of serious corporate power. 
for better and worse. I mean, I'm not going to say it's all for worse. It's uh, we are tremendously inventive people, and and thanks to corporations having some size, uh, we we maybe a lot of good has can occur more than has already happened. But we also face some daunting challenges and. The personhood argument, I noticed it's getting a lot more attention now. Citizens United, I remember when I read that text, I thought there was probably good reason for them to decide in the way they did. There's, It's not so simply dismissed. That wasn't necessarily a bad decision. I think probably that was a decision that had to go the way it went to, uh, you know, there, people can band together. And as that group, they need to be able to advocate for certain things. Um, I think that the Supreme Court for important reasons, voted to okay that. But we just have a hell of a challenge on our hands with corporations being the size they are, and especially with the arrival of a woke technocracy. This is just, this is the other part of to this that's funny about this book is the book got written, but just since I finished the book, my goodness, the last two years have been a ride that I think uh, none of us can, could even have imagined. It's, it's been so wild. And the one thing I see still standing after the last two years and the dust is beginning to settle is the power of the technocracy that we, we are now, uh, you know, it's long in the making, but here it is. So, Your first line of your introduction is that this book written between 2010 and 2015 explains cultural and political polarization. That's a big claim. That's a, we're glad somebody has. But. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, it, I, I don't think anyone has really adequately explained it. And, you know, you can look at Federalist 10, you know, and see that with the size of our country being what it is, there ought to be there'll be no one or two factions that could take control of the country. And yet you could argue that's what polarization means. We all use the word. It means that you're going to tend to be this kind of person or that kind of person, blue state or red state. The wonder is that we are under the influence of a polar, of what I would call a polarizing influence. And I think the challenge we all face is to figure out where that comes from. And I, I think in my book, the, the elephant in the room is the, um, the destruction of the medieval inheritance. That's, that's the biggest, most important event that polarization can be traced to. How, why, that's, a, those, that's another set of questions. But I think that is absolutely central. And you trace a lot of that to the Civil War, and you spend a lot of time on the Civil War. And you certainly make no defense of what you call the crime of chattel slavery. But your central theory of the war is that the North was waging a battle against tradition-based societies, be they Native American or Southern to the benefit of fossil fuel driven industrialism. And, and here I do wanna push back a little bit. Uh, I think it, it is certainly fair to point out that the North was racist in many ways, but it seems to me that the idea that the Southern states secede or that the North goes to war to bring them back without slavery, that seems a, a bridge too far. If, if the manual labor workforce in the South were free whites, I just don't see that happening. I think, I think slavery is central to that. It doesn't take away from the the broader point of that there were in, important aspects of uh, sort of uh, medieval remnants within Southern culture that uh, where their loss was a real loss. But am I reading you correctly uh, in your theory of the war? I would phrase it just a little differently and say that 
you know, I, I think I start off my discussion of, of the Civil War giving a nod to Lincoln, all the cause for the, the North, um, the, the script that we all understand when we listen to the Gettysburg Address. It's a script that I believe in. And I, eliminating slavery is a great event that I would not want to question under any circumstances. And of course, one of the things I'm most struck by now is that the Civil War continues. And ironically, now we're being asked to, you know, just you were saying earlier, a person was once considered property. Now maybe our new, the fruit of the Civil War might, we should notice that it was also the idea that that property could be a person. Similarly, we fought a Civil War to eliminate slavery, to eliminate skin color as, or at least define it as an incidental so that people could be respected as persons regardless of their skin color. Now the Civil War is recurring, but on a different premise, which is that skin color is essential and personal agency not so essential. Martin Luther King would be astonished that we are now through the the woke moment um, claiming these sorts of things. But my point here is that the Civil War was a very good thing in that it brought an end to slavery. It's been a long time, but we are, I believe, a post-racist nation on account of the Civil War. But it was also at the same time about a lot of other things. And you can't just see that it think or claim that it was only about eliminating slavery. And I try to list all the other reasons to to remember that the Civil War accomplished much. And by the way, no one planned this. I think it's just what happened. And what you see is a larger historical force towards centralization that gains, that is, just has cogency with now, as you look at the, the, the Civil War, there's, you see that it was about centralizing the power in this country. It's, you see that it was about the founding of a centralized republic rather than the constitutional one we started out with. And you also see that it was about consolidating power. You know, over the course of the Civil War, industrial interests did gain an advantage that they wouldn't have otherwise had, just like now on account of the, the linkage of Black Lives Matter and the lockdowns, you see that the, the very global elites who, <laughs> had power, have yet more power through the what we've all experienced through the last few years. As the Civil War continues, consolidation of war of power continues, and you begin to see that the Civil War is still present, not, I would submit, just because, or maybe not even because of the, the race issue, but because there's something more involved. And in our case, that is the I submit the the destruction of the medieval inheritance. It continues maybe even three years ago. It hadn't gone yet. We've been living on drawdowns on capital that was built up over the Middle Ages. But I think now as we look around, you can just feel the end. That's been drawn down right to the bottom. And as a result, we are an essentially polarized people and it's a, an occasion for real sadness. And, and uh, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think we all know that something has been removed. In the book, I claim that theoretically, you know, you can look back and see that something was removed, something where there was a, a force toward decentralization, genuine culture, and real reason. 
and there's that's endangered. Now I begin to see that it is just gone. And I, I, um, I'm not sure I'm right. I hope I'm not right. I hope it's a function of my age and maybe, you know, my own tiredness, but it feels like something has really been removed from our culture. We can't as a people get behind a football game or a baseball game the way we could. We can't as a people enjoy the next issue of Breaking Bad, which had a strong moral compass. There's something has been removed. <laughs> and my thesis in the book, theoretical as it was, was that the thing that's been removed is, a, is an integrative center that was operational in the Middle Ages that has taken a long time to be removed, but it's, it's going. And now I think you can feel that viscerally. This idea of, a, of a, the center being, being ripped out, you see that center being rooted in, in the medieval era. You illustrate it well, I think, with a discussion of how drought and flood are not opposites. Yeah, well, you're describing that moment where I talk about drought and flood. They appear to be opposites, but in fact, they are similars because they both mean destruction. What's been removed is an integrating center, which is a functioning forest, which in times of heavy rainfall can absorb water and then release it gradually because it acts like a sponge. You cut down the forest, the erosion takes out the topsoil and all the plants that used to thrive there. And then um, it's all washed down into the floodplains and you've got a cycle of drought and then uh, flood. It's, uh, there's no middle ground. I think that's a very general but helpful way to describe the false opposites that are being presented to us now as choices when in fact they really are not dialectically opposed choices that can enable constructive reasoning based on a principle of contradiction. And that's just something I notice again and again and again. All of us can notice it again and again and again. You know, the, you can see, to, to switch to a different sphere from an ecological one, you can go to, you know, the difference between the 19, I mean, the 1776 project devised at the end of the Trump administration to shore up founding ideals that were under attack by the 1619 project, the study that Harvard, or, or maybe it was the New York Times put that together. I get a little confused. But those two are the opposing camps that we're, see, we're being asked to take sides on on one side or the other as we look at a woke universe. You know, you can see Claremont Institute and Larry Arn, bless him, up at Hillsdale, people aligned with Trump lining up behind the 1776 project. You see the, the woke forces lining up behind the 1619 project. Those are themselves just different expressions of the removal of the medieval center. It goes back to the difference between classical liberalism as it showed up in England and progressivism as it first showed up in France. You've got that whole communist sort of idealized the, the medieval era thing going on through France and the, and the Marxists now aligned with that, or they used to be now, I don't know what the word would be. And then on the other hand, you've got principle of the English sort of caution regarding the French Revolution, um, wonderfully expressed in all the wonderful thinkers who came out of that classical liberal tradition. But ultimately, these two sides will be at loggerheads forever. Just we will be, if that's all our choice, we'll be remain polarized in that way until we recognize that those two things, those two positions, if you will, are the fruit of the removal of the medieval center that began with the 
claiming of the commons in England on the one hand, and then the uh, you know the more complicated way through the uh, through Descartes and the, um, the both <laughs> Bacon, Bacon and Descartes. I try to go to that, and this we could we could get lost in this stuff, but they both basically are perfect examples of how we as civilizationally chose power over the medieval end, which was contemplation. And ever since, whether it's on the British continent or on the, on the European continent, we've been dealing with expressions of what you're left with after you remove that Christian center. And that is a helpful thing to notice because it reminds us that the Christian center may in fact be more reasonable than we ever could have imagined. Maybe it's the foundation, for good reasons, the foundation of science. Maybe it's where reason really lives. I mean, the Greeks looked forward to it, and now we can look back to it. The Greeks expected it. We can see that it was removed. Got to look back to what happened in 1519, and before that, really, in the late 1300s. That's where, that's the big hinge. That's where it all changed. So we're still suffering the effects, and I think they're speeding up. I'm hearing echoes of my conversation with Oz Guinness, uh, which if you haven't heard it, you might enjoy, and listeners might want to go back and I look forward to that, and I confess I have not. <laughs> the Dr. Guinness highlights me of those same, same themes. Wrap up on the Civil War, I'll just, I'll just note that you, you know, when, when did we have this right? Uh, and we, we haven't had it right for a while. You don't defend the South as having it right. You describe the South as sort of a medieval theme park, as a, kind yeah. of a, a warped version of this medieval ideal. How far back do we need to go? Flesh out a little more what you, what you see in the medieval that, uh, you know, the two-minute version of why the Middle Ages were great. Well, first of all, a disclaimer, you know, you can't go back. You, you can't romanticize the, or idealize the middle, the, the feudal era. It's, it's just to do that, you're, that's what, that was the big flaw in, in Marxist thinking. It's the big flaw, flaw in ultimately fascist thinking. You know, you're, you're building, upholding a nostalgia for a time that no longer exists, cannot exist. So if something comes on like it, it'll have to be something different. That said, you can see if that's why I try to take a little time to explain what Middle Ages look like, the kind that grew out of feudalism. There was a, a, a lean toward decentralized power that allowed flourishing of a kind that really, from a distance, looks extraordinary. You had the arrival of universities. You had widespread literacy in the most important senses. You had um, great workmanship. You had uh, agriculture that that made uh, that reclaimed. Put it this way: the the wilderness of Europe at that time was managed for fertility. I think that's what you see. And there were all kinds of problems, but there was something achieved there. And under it all is the word, which is there's a societal expression of that there's an economic expression of that there's a literal expression of that in in a in, that a poet might know where you look at what happens when you link sound to sense and a, and something named start be suddenly visible for what it actually is and i say it that word is advisedly in the best christian sense it's 
that's what you see when you look at the Middle Ages, where the word prospered. What you see now is a place where the word is under obvious attack, whether it be the word interpreted in societal sense, in economic sense, a poetic sense, a religious sense. That would be the most fundamental difference. And you can document this. You can go back and read any of the better sources to understand the Middle Ages. And all the way, you've got to keep your thinking cap on because you've got to remember you can't go back. It's, but I think the way forward now for us is to start with something as literal as the kind of localism that Front Porch Republic espouses. You've got to remember that anything like the, the medieval era, it comes from the bottom up. It's, it cannot be imposed from the top down. And we just have to be patient and wait for whatever new civilization is to come, if there is one to come from the bottom up. Right now it's pretty dark, but it'll only be, uh, a light will only shine if we remember what, what did occur once and could occur again. Well, as our listeners can tell, big themes in this relatively thin book. Uh, a lot of good stories too, just that you use so. to, to help highlight. So I thought maybe we do a little bit of a lightning round. Uh, I'll throw out some names from the book. You tell us how. Oh my. How these, how these got there, <laughs> and um, we'll, we'll try to keep it quick, but there's a, there are entertaining aspects of this book as well. So we'll start with Jimmy the Greek. How does Jimmy the Greek get into your book? Oh, thank you for mentioning Jimmy the Greek. I have enormous fondness for Jimmy the Greek. I never met him personally, but I grew up watching him with Brent Musburger um, talking about basketball. He was... Football, uh, mostly. I mean, excuse me, football. He, he was just a wonderful presence um, and he typifies Scooberville in all the best and worst senses. He, he was, he got fired for, I'm not making any excuses for, for his, his missteps uh, as a, as a commentator on TV, but right. he pioneered uh, spread betting. He, he almost invented it. He did that by uh, paying tipping porters on trains, due in from St. Louis and points West and all coming from all across the Midwest to give him the papers of all the towns that they passed through when that train finally arrived in Steubenville. Jimmy, the Greek had, had some, uh, some real serious knowledge about upcoming football prospects. And he, he um, was able to uh, predict with amazing accuracy uh, who would be a power and who wouldn't. And I think, you know, his family's very proud of the fact that he correctly called, um, what is it, 18 out of 21 Super Bowls. That's a pretty good record. You know, he he really knew his stuff. He's buried here in Steubenville, and uh, Steubenville's very proud of him, and for very good reason. And we could we could go down this tangent a, a long way. I won't go down too much further, but I, I, yeah. our listeners who are not familiar with Steubenville, perhaps like myself, all you know is that there's a conservative Catholic university somewhere out there. I've heard of that. Yeah. The history you painted that town, it's very much a town of, of vice founded on gambling and prostitution and the like. And um, very much known as the little Chicago, you make the argument that it's really more the little Las Vegas and you, you show a lot of links between yes. the citizenry of Steubenville and the, the rise of Las Vegas. Anyway, we'll just leave that tantalizingly out there for reason for folks to go and, and buy the book. Okay, next one up in the lightning round. Play that funky music. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I say that that tune rang uh, painfully in my ear, but 
Uh, that's Wild Cherry. And uh, you're getting a taste of the music. You know, we all went through the, that horrible era in, in music. Um, I did not know that Wild Cherry was formed in Mingo Junction. Um, these guys, you know, the guy, I think Perini was the guy who ran the band. He, he was a steakhouse manager. He too typifies this, this part of the Ohio River. Bless him. That hit, um, as everyone knows, uh, from watching line dancing at countless weddings became an enormous hit. It got to be a tiresome one for me, but I, my, my friend, Larry Mader, who makes cabinets or did make cabinets in this area, was a part of Wild Cherry. And, and of all things, you know, he, he quit the band right before uh, Play That Funky Music, White Boy went platinum. So that's the most important thing to remember about that song is Larry Mader's lost fortune and God bless him. <laughs> he's, he's doing very well, even though he was that close as Get Smart used to say. <laughs> he almost got rich, but you know, it's tough sometimes, yeah. The Wild Cherry, named for the Luden's cough drop that uh, yes. I used to <clears throat> fake a cough for to get from my mother. <laughs> yeah, especially valuable now in the time of COVID. Okay, a couple more more serious names. James McGreedy. Who's James McGreedy? Why is he yeah, born well, to Ohio into us? You're going to test me. Um, McGreedy would be the, the uh, preacher man, if you will, if I may borrow a uh, uh, maybe disrespectful term, but he he was uh, he pioneered camp meetings and uh, he, his preaching was it was under his auspices, really his and un, maybe in, in uh, as a result of his prayers that the camp meeting phenomenon exploded. He was schooled just east of Steubenville, right on the other side of the river. He went down to North Carolina for a while. There's a secret connection between the North Carolina back country and the, uh, and the hill country up in our, you know, the up little bit of Appalachia that's up here in, in this part of Ohio. He's a Presbyterian minister who uh, just had a real good sense of how bad it could be to be um, in a state of sin and how wonderful it could be if, if you suddenly could realize that you might be one of the elect. He, he was, um, it was a kind of uh, frank, a new kind of revivalism that the world had not known, but he yet known, but he pioneered it and it became Cane Ridge and then the, the second great awakening and the rest of his history. But he, he, he's from right here, Western PA, just across the river from Steubenville. You trace that all the way up to Elvis Presley. And again, we'll, we'll leave that for <laughs> the readers yeah. to find. Okay, yeah. last of the lightning round, Thomas Hutchins. Yeah, well, he, he's a Matt, uh, he's, a, he's a cartographer, uh, but more importantly, a surveyor. Um, he, he had surveyed the entire, uh, map, the entire Ohio River. He was chosen by Congress to be the first cartographer of the United States. He, he did run the Seven Ranges survey, which we have not yet talked about, but he drove in the state that was the point of beginning for a lot more besides what he thought it was about. But that was a stake he drove in the ground near East Liverpool. He ran a, land, a line straight west for, I guess, 36 miles, and then a line straight south till he hit the Ohio River. And that he defined the perimeter of the seven ranges along with the help of the Ohio River. So he's the guy who first divided hill country into, into section and range as per Congress's instructions. And that public surveying system, which he pioneered and he, he initiated, of course, became the surveying system for all country west of the Ohio River and a little bit of Maine besides up in the northern Maine woods, which I don't talk about, but they're, 
there was that. Wherever it hadn't land hadn't yet been deeded and mapped, uh, that was the way in which uh, it got that way. And he didn't know the the repercussions of what he was doing, but in in this case, it enabled the commodification of land in ways that had not formerly been known on the planet. So a very important guy. And turning to one of our favorite personalities on the porch, Wendell Berry, you touch on him a bit, mostly to laud him, but you do have a a bit of a critique, and I just wanted to go into that because I, I think I agree with it, but it's, there are a lot of things in the book where you, you assume a lot of knowledge by the reader that uh, maybe not every reader, including this one, uh, has at the time. So I'd, I'd like to read you your critique of Barry and then have you flesh it out a little more. And say Barry's project has also been in important ways compromised, first by a typically modern imprecision regarding crucial terms like spirit, flesh, soul, and mind, and second, by a decision to define incarnation in opposition to, say, the Council of Nicaea, rather than in light of that same council. So walk us through that. How does Wendell Berry get the incarnation wrong? Well, he gets intuitively almost all of it right. That's the thing you can see in his novels and in his poems. When he's actually writing his essays, which um, I think might be his greatest influence, so I, I could be wrong on that. I mean, I, long term, maybe it is his novels and his poems, but he got famous through Unsettling of America and his essays. He understands incarnate, he understands maybe through his concept of remembering what an incarnational center is. So I would say he he defers always to an incarnational center. And he's he, he has himself used the phrase, the incarnate word. He, he's, he's big on that. Where I'm suggesting there, there is, his light could have shined greater than it already has. And I, I would like to, you know, I say it, it has, it does shine very brightly. Is if he had, um, it's, I think where, where he's challenged is in his, his, uh, his, he's to some extent outside the church. He instinctively avoids the established churches. He sees them as sources of trouble. I understand all that. But one of the things you've got to recognize, not I'm not lecturing here, I'm just, I think it's wise to notice, is that the Council of Nicaea is where all the warring tendencies of Jesus was just a man who, uh, or Jesus was God, you know, which is it? That was where Athanasius first brokered a deal where everyone could see that that the central event of Christianity was incarnation. That was to say he was both God and man. That is something that is very difficult to understand, but that's what we mean by incarnation. That was codified in the Council of Nicaea when we say Jesus was made incarnate by the Virgin Mary and became man. That is that is the really revolutionary, incendiary speech act that belongs to Christianity. That has been best protected by the Catholic Church. I don't, you know, whether you can hate it or not, it's just there. That, But it's also, you can tap it through any number of other Protestant uh, religions. No one has lived up to that, but we've got to... Um, to remember that incarnation, if that's important, or if we need to reflect on what an integrative center might be, that is best, it came into view at the Council of Nicaea and has been best articulated by people during the high Middle Ages at, say, Oxford and Paris, at the universities there, where suddenly reason in the best 
most human flourishing sense came into view. And the incarnational logic developed there that was quickly undercut by Occam almost, you know, within 50 years is where the, the doctrine called the incarnation, the scandal of the incarnation reached its best expression at that time. And that it, um, it's never, we've got to go back to that. We've got to develop fluency so that we can meet all the challenges still to come by maintaining some knowledge of how people in the high middle ages thought. That was what I was trying to suggest uh, Wendell Berry you know, I wish he had spent more time thinking in, in those sorts of ways and avoiding the kinds of uh, modern terms that result from the removal of that high Middle Ages incarnational center. That's that's what I meant when I, it's not really a criticism so much as a, a way to remember where the light that Barry has already cast could be made brighter still. I think that's the way I'd put it. And regarding Wendell Berry, you know, I continue to be amazed by the by the class that was taught by Wallace Stegner out in uh, California. You know, he was trained out there. And, you know, the best thing about Wendell Berry is he, he made a decision to write and think in Henry County, Kentucky. You know, that that that's a heroic act. I mean, he, he could have gotten jobs in New York. He could have gotten them out in Palo Alto, but he didn't. And I, I still that's what I would focus on the most there. And I I'm amazed by the the minds that were assembled out there under, uh, you know, Stegner's tutelage, because you not only had, like Tilly Olson, I think was out there. He's a great short story, right? I think I got that right. We, Robert Stone was in that class. Uh, my goodness, you know, the darker side of the, of that class, maybe a, a terrific writer, maybe the best writer of them all. And then Larry McMurtry was part of that, that group. You know, what an amazing, it's kind of like the American, equivalent of the inklings, you know, it's uh, really a stunning thing. So we've all got to turn maybe to Wallace Stegner and give thanks for him also. And uh, you, as you gave a nice uh, throwback to some ideas that Oz Guinness had, had put forward on the podcast earlier, and you're giving a preview here in the months to come, we will have a discussion of Stegner with a, an author who has a wonderful, a new book uh, coming soon to a bookstore near you. <laughs> Well, Will, thank you very much. It's been a, a fascinating discussion. We're about at an hour right now. But I wanted to cover one topic, maybe a little less serious, but still one that has left me a bit baffled. And that is the cover of your book. Uh, <laughs> now, I realize authors don't always have creative control over this imagery. But I must admit that I can't think of a title, subtitle, cover combo that left me more surprised about what was actually inside than yours. Uh, so to paint the picture for the listeners, the cover is a black and white photograph of what looks to me to be a forest fire lookout tower perched high above the tree line on some western mountains. And so I did not expect to open up and, and see this story of a riverboat ride in the Midwest. Now, at the end of the book, you do engage a bit with this idea of watchtowers as as places of contemplation. Uh, was was that where the cover's coming from, or or what's happening here? Can you can you solve this mystery of the cover for me? Because I admit I still am baffled. Well, um, I I hope I can. I they asked me what my idea for a good cover would be, and I said, well, make it either a a painting of a towboat of a tow working its way up river at night with a searchlight out in front of it 
or a picture of the uh, sourdough lookout and the North Cascades. And they, they, the quicker and easier route was to make a, to find the picture of the sourdough, sourdough lookout in the North Cascades. I can't really excuse that except to say that, you know, you we all remember the, the movie called The Deer Hunter, which was also about Eastern Ohio. And that, that featured mountains and everyone, what, where, where, why is Robert De Niro out in the Rockies when he's supposed <laughs> yeah. to be hunting in West Virginia? And so if he can do it, I can do it. You know, the wheelhouse on the toe is a, is a watchtower of sorts. It's a, glass, it's a room with glass walls uh, so you can see. And, and it's been very important for me to just in my own thinking, you know, you're, I think being in a watchtower is not a bad place to be given the times we're in. So there was a fondness for the image. And uh, of course, it's also the watchtower that Kerouac manned when he was up in the North Cascades. And I've always just had a personal fondness for his journey and his, his um, time, the time in which he wrote when the word really still mattered and uh, Tulane blacktops really went somewhere. But um, I can't, beyond those remarks, excuse the, uh, the dissonance you <laughs> might have felt. And uh, it needed a credit too. It didn't get one, and I—they're working on it. But it's the time of COVID. What what can you do? Well, that uh, confusing, but now explained. Image aside, the book is the Seven Ranges: Ground Zero for the Staging of America. The author is Will Hoyt. Will, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for the honor of being here. I really appreciate it. Find your way home